Would you guys join with me as we turn to God now in prayer, in preparation just to hear his word together. Father, we come to you now and we ask, God, that as you have poured out your spirit upon the church and as your personal presence is here with us today, God, would you open up hearts and minds? Would you make us attentive to your voice? God, would you reassure us that we belong to you? Father, would you embolden us and empower us to be your church on mission? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been in a series in the book of 1 John entitled Authentic Church, and we're going to take a break from our series today as it's Pentecost Sunday, and I want to just spend some time in reflection upon that great text in Acts chapter 2 that we just heard read. So I wanted to begin like this. So Um, In 1966, just as Beatlemania was being recognized as an almost religious phenomenon, some of you might even remember this, John Lennon, who was only 26 years old at the time, stirred up controversy in America when he made this statement in an interview. He said, quote, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I know I'm right, and it will be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. Now, in the 50-plus years since this statement was made, according to Pew Research Center, Christianity is still the largest religion in the world with some 2.38 billion followers, people who identify as Christians. Now, um, there are, there, it may be possible that there's just as many Beatles fans I know I'm a Beatles fan. My parents are fans of the Beatles. My kids are fans of the Beatles. Most of you, if you have good sense about you, are fans of the Beatles. (laughs) Yes, we... we. (laughs) But the point is, is that the church in spite of the, you know, staying power and popularity of the Beatles, of course, the church has had even larger staying power and continued popularity. Now, it's true that the church has been in decline in the global north, in countries like America or in Europe or Australia, but interestingly, it's, being, it's doing just the opposite in the global south. And so, for example, take a look at this. A um, hundred years ago, in the global north, that is, Christians in North America, Europe, and Australia, outnumbered Christians in the global south by a number of four to one. But today, in the global south, uh, Christians outnumber those in the global north by 67 to 33%. And so the big blobs down in the south represent the size or the relative size of Christianity to those in the north. And in, uh, you know, uh, in 1910, Christians made up just 9% of the sub-Saharan African population. By 2010, that number had jumped to 63%. And in the same time, the number of Pacific Asian Christians has doubled from just 3% in 1910 to 7% today, and numbers in Latin America tell the same kind of story. Now, this is not simply an example of Western imperialism. In fact, uh, African Christianity is distinctly African, not American, and Asian Christianity is distinctly Asian, and Latin American Christianity is distinctly Latin American, not European. And so what's my point of all this? It's not to stick it to John Lennon, though, you know, to say, ha-ha, see, we're winning, you know. (laughs) 
but to say that the, the face of global Christianity is dramatically changing from predominantly a white Western European religion to a truly universal one, a truly multi-ethnic, truly multicultural and global faith. The gospel is truly reaching to the ends of the earth. Now, even that doesn't tell the full story, uh, and it's a bit misleading because Christianity didn't begin in the Western world. It it didn't begin in Europe. Uh, Christianity began in the Middle East. And the first centers of early Christianity uh, were in North Africa and Asia Minor and the Middle East and Greece and Italy. You can kind of see on this map, uh, this is basically where all the centers of early Christianity were. And it wouldn't actually be until the seventh century that the church would evangelize my ancient ancestors in England or the English. Uh, Incidentally, a few years back when I was writing my dissertation, I came across a quote uh, from the gentleman who was actually tasked by the Pope to evangelize the English. And to my surprise, in a letter that he wrote to the Pope, uh, this is Augustine of Canterbury, and he wrote this to Pope Gregory in 597, he said this. He described the English as, quote, a barbarous, fierce, and unbelieving nation with a strange language which I think is a rather offensive way of describing my ancestors, fierce and barbarous. But, the, but, but again, the point is the same. You know, Christianity from its very inception has always been a global religion. From its very beginning, the very intention, actually the very intention given to us on the day of Pentecost is that the church would go out and would evangelize the nations. And I think what what we have an opportunity to do on a day like today as a church is to sit back and to reflect upon the global mission that God has given to us, his church, and to think together about the global nature of Christianity and what that means for us and our own role in the mission of God. And so what I want to do uh, with you today is I want to invite you to join with me as we kind of enter back into the story of the original Pentecost given to us in Acts 2, and then we want to reflect upon what all of this means for the church today. And uh, the story begins like this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says... When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, let's just set this story in its context. Uh, Just 50 days prior, Jesus had been raised physically and bodily from the dead. And he appeared to his disciples at various times in various places over the course of these 50 days. And then on um, just... Days before this, Jesus ascended before his disciples, but before he, did, he ascended, he said to them, remain in Jerusalem until the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to you, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so now here, uh, the Jews are all gathered together. The disciples are gathered together in Jerusalem, waiting just as Jesus said. And it says in our text that it's the day of Pentecost. And so that raises a question, what is Pentecost anyway? So um, Pentecost is the Greek transliteration of a word that basically means 50th. And it refers to a Jewish harvest festival. So there were three main festivals that the Jews celebrated throughout the year. 
Uh, and on each of these festivals, they would take a long pilgrimage from other parts of the world into Jerusalem so that they could be in the holy city to celebrate their great festivals. And so the first of the three festivals is Passover. It's in the spring, and it basically celebrated the beginning of the barley harvest and of Israel's liberation from Egypt. In other words, at Passover, they would celebrate God as the creator who gives us food and God as our great liberator and redeemer who sets his captives free. And then 50 days after Passover is the second festival, which is Pentecost, which was right at the end of spring and just before the beginning of summer, which is where we're at. We're right at the end of spring and just at the beginning of summer, right? Anybody graduate in the last uh, couple days or get done with school? Some of you guys, yes, praise God. But it celebrated the close of the barley harvest and the beginning of the wheat harvest. And so they would take their first sheaves of wheat and then they would offer them to God at the temple as an act of sacrifice and of thanksgiving and of praise. And incidentally, Pentecost was also coupled with the celebration of the giving of the law at Pentecost or on uh, Sinai, which was 50 days after Passover. And you remember what happened on that occasion? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the law. And it was a celebration of uh, both in the wheat harvest, the celebration of God's giving of food for his people again, but also of God's gift of his law to his people. And I know to us modern people, it sounds a little bit strange to have a great holiday and a celebration for God giving his law. You know, we think, yeah, let's have a big holiday celebrating laws and regulations and rules. You know, it's not really something we American people are too into. But, you know, for the Jewish mindset, God's law was a gift because it was God's self-disclosure his very revelation of himself. And for the Jews, they believed that God's word was the very bread that would sustain and nourish their lives. And so on Pentecost, they would celebrate the giving of the law. So let's go on. It says, and then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. So here they are, they're sitting there, they've been there for a few days, probably each day gathering together again in prayer, in song, in chanting, maybe some readings, maybe some reflections. But there they are gathered together and then suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And so at this point, the action moves incredibly quickly. There is a rushing mighty wind and fire and then, uh, you know, these symbols of these tongues of fire. And each of the words in this text are latent. They're just pregnant with meaning. You know, it, it speaks here of wind and fire. And we wonder, what's that all about? You know, there was this mighty rushing wind, and then there was fire, you know, tongues of fire. And uh, it says that it spread from each person. And we almost imagine like human, you know, candles, you know, little lights on the flickering on the top of their head. I don't even know what to imagine, you know. But the point isn't so much what we are to imagine. The point is the symbolic power of these two words, wind and fire. You know, throughout the Old Testament, when God would manifest himself palpably and visibly before his people, oftentimes it would be in both wind 
and fire. You remember back in the very opening chapter of the book of Genesis, the very first verses of creation, the very first picture we get of the Spirit of God, and it says the Spirit of God was hovering, or the breath of God, the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Scriptures tells us that God rides on the wings of the wind, and that there was a strong wind on Mount Sinai when God appeared there and delivered his law. And wind is wild, isn't it? Wind is untamable energy. Wind is mysterious, and it is beyond human control. Have you ever tried to control or capture wind? Growing up, you know, I grew up as a surfer, and it used to be so depressing to go down to the beach in the morning and have a strong south wind blowing and just completely mess up the surf. And I would wish at that point as a 16, 17-year-old for the power to harness the wind and to put it under my control, but you can't do that, not as a 16-year-old or as a 6-year-old, amen? I mean, the wind is untamable, unmanageable, and uncontrollable power. In the scripture, wind also reanimates and it gives life to that valley of dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 36. So wind, it symbolizes the mysterious, the untamable, the renewing power of God, his very ability to bring life from death. And then fire is equally pregnant with meaning in the Old Testament. You know, God appeared to Abraham in a flaming torch in the deep darkness, and he appeared to Moses and spoke in a burning bush, and he guided the children of Israel in a pillar of fire by night. And so fire was a symbol of, again, the palpable, they experienced the near presence of God. And fire also is uncontrollable and untamable energy. And it's purifying and revealing and consuming. You know, fire can light up and illuminate a dark sky, and it can give warmth, but don't get too close because fire can also be dangerous, right? And so these two metaphors of fire and wind symbolizes the very presence of God. And so here on the first day of Pentecost, what are we seeing? It's the very personal presence of God, His Holy Spirit being poured out on the church, You know, sometimes we speak about the Holy Spirit as if the Spirit is like the force in Star Wars. You know, it's some power that especially, you know, talented Jedi Christians have, the ones who pray for people and speak in tongues and such. But no, the the Holy Spirit is not the force. The Holy Spirit is the very personal presence of God. The Spirit of God is personal. God is tri-personal, tri-unity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so here we are witnessing the very personal presence of God. And notice in the text what happens when God shows up in all of his untamable, unmanageable power. Something, at least to me, surprising happens. Notice what happens, the next verse. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and it says they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when God walks in the room and fills a community of people, what is the very first thing God does? He enables people to speak in language they did not otherwise know. You know, I know sometimes we connect uh, the verse here uh, with Pentecostal denominations of Christians and with the phenomenon in the modern world of speaking in tongues. 
you know, which growing up, I remember, you know, going to my grandma's church, which was Pentecostal, and there would oftentimes be a hum over the congregation when we would worship, you know, and you'd hear this, shanda barahanda, shanda barahanda, shanda barahanda, and this, you know, this, like, unintelligible speech. But that's actually not what's happening in this text. Uh, what we're witnessing here is not the enablement to speak in the tongues of angels. Here, they are enabled to speak in the tongues of men, because look what happens next. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Why? Because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they're speaking in language they didn't know, but these Jews who had gathered from all the four corners of the earth to gather to worship and to celebrate Pentecost knew because they were speaking in their language. And they were all amazed and they were astonished, saying, are not these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? They say, how is it that we hear in our own native language are not these Galileans? And this is something of a bit of a racial slur that they are committing here. Uh, it's something like, how is it that we hear these redneck Galileans? Because Galilee was like the backwoods of the Roman Empire, the backwoods of even Palestine. It was way off in Galilee. It was like deep in the south in Arkansas, you know, and those people are backwards, they thought. They're rednecks. I don't think that, in case you're, but that's what they thought. Are they not speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Greeks, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And so what do they hear? They hear their own languages. And what are they hearing them say in their own language? The text says the mighty works of God. And what are the mighty works of God? Well, a little bit later in chapter 2, we find out it's the mighty work of God that he accomplished in his son Jesus, who was a prophet of God, uh, mighty in power, Peter will say who demonstrated God's power in healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and giving sight to the blind and raising the dead. And where God's power was most mightily and powerfully on display was in the resurrection of Jesus. And so what are they hearing? They're hearing the gospel preached in their own native language. And this is what amazes them. What, what shocks them in this moment is not the tongues of fire, it is not the mighty rushing wind and the sound, it is the fact that they are hearing in their own language, they are hearing translated into their very own heart language, their mother tongue, the gospel of God. Now, not all are impressed. Look at what it says. And it says, and all were, well, it says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But look at what it says. But others mocked, said, uh, they're filled with new wine. That word new wine is probably a reference to cheap wine. And so they're, they're, they're mocking them. They're like, you guys are drinking too much cheap wine. And look at Peter's response. Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. 
men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. You know, people don't even get drunk in Los Angeles at nine o'clock in the morning. He says, it's only the third hour of the day, but he says, this is not that, but this is that which the prophet Joel foretold. And he quotes Joel to explain what's going on. From Joel 2, he draws these words, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It says in, uh, according to Peter, in the last days, actually, in Joel 2, it says, after these things. But Peter tweaks the text a little bit to make it apply specifically to what he believes is the time and place in cosmic history. Right now, a new day has dawned because God's new creation has walked out of the tomb. God's new creation has broken right into this old world, putting on notice that this old world is passing away and God's new kingdom, God's new creation is coming. And the evidence is that the Spirit of God has been poured out, he says, on all flesh. He says, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They shall speak words about God, words of the gospel, words of encouragement and education, edification. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my female servants and female, or male servants and female slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall all prophesy. Peter is saying, essentially, you are living in the day when God's long-awaited promises are being fulfilled. You know, in the Old Testament, God's spirit would fill certain individuals at certain periods of time. Maybe a judge here, a king there, a prophet over in this region, they might be filled uniquely with the power of the Spirit. But here he says, the day has come when the Spirit of God would no longer be particularized to specific people in specific places, but all of humanity could have access to the personal presence of God. All of humanity could have access to God's presence filling them. And the point is that one day, God would pour out his spirit in a way that disregards the gender or the age or the socioeconomic status barriers, and all people could experience the power and the presence of God. Well, he, he's more particular than that. It's, it's not indiscriminately all people, but it's all people who call upon the name of the Lord. He said, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the text ends. Actually, the text doesn't end. That's where we're ending today. The text keeps going on for another 28 chapters. But I want to stand back and I just want to make a couple observations about what we see happening in this text that are applicable to us as we think about our mission together as the people of God. You know, we've said again and again over the last few weeks, you know, we're getting to a place where we're entering into a new phase in the life of our church, a new season. I can taste the bathrooms being available. It's coming close. That sounded weird. I can sense, I can feel, I don't know. I'm hopeful. But they're coming. 
Maybe July. Yes, can we just claim that? <laughs> July in the name of Jesus. But we're entering into a new phase in the life of our church. And we have to ask, again, we always have to keep going back and revisiting this question. What is God calling us as a people to be about? And to answer that question, we have to ask, what is God and his spirit about in this world? And this text tells us what God's spirit is about in this world, what God is up to in this world. And here's what it's showing us. Pentecost is revealing to us something about the global nature of God's mission. On the day of Pentecost, we get a window into the global mission of God. I want you to notice back at chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, he talks about all of the different regions where the people that were there in Jerusalem had come from. And when you lay it out on a map, these groups cover literally tens of thousands of square miles. And when you lay them out on the map, they, they, they cover the, the, all of the known world from Luke's vantage point. Of course, there were other people in other parts of the world, but Luke didn't know about those people, so he was only writing about those people who came from these regions that were within his own vantage point. But listen, here's the point. The very first time that the gospel is ever preached, the very first time that the news of the death and resurrection of Jesus goes out to new people who had not yet heard it, it is not preached in any one particular privileged language or to any one particular culture, but to a plurality of cultures and in a plurality of languages. Now, I don't think I can overemphasize the significance of this point. When the gospel is first preached, not one unique, distinct culture gets a privileged hearing. And this would go on to rock the early Christian movement. You know, the primal debate that occurred in the early church the fundamental issue that created division in the early church where there was fights and debates over what about half of the New Testament letters are about is whether or not when people converted to Christianity, they also had to become culturally Jewish. In other words, is this a homogeneous religion? Is this a monoculture? Do uh, new converts, is it enough for them to confess and to trust in Jesus and his saving power or do they also have to adopt Jewish customs and Jewish clothing styles and Jewish holidays and the Jewish diet and the Jewish practice of circumcision and read through your Bible, this is what they're fighting about in Galatians and in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Romans and in the book of Ephesians. And the debate went on. There was on the one side of the debate, there were the Judaizers who were basically cultural imperialists saying, look, you got to not just adopt Jesus, you got to adopt our culture, which is superior to every other culture in this fallen, broken, Gentile, pagan world. And so there was the Judaizers, the cultural imperialists on one side, and on the other side were, uh, was the Apostle Paul, the apostle of grace who said, no, apart from circumcision and the food laws and the holidays, you can adopt Jesus as your savior and, and Jesus can become incarnated in the life of your particular culture. You don't have to become like our culture. And so what we are seeing in this moment 
is that the gospel is inherently transcultural. I find this to be one of the most beautiful and compelling aspects of Christianity. Now, I know that Christian missions to the global south has had a very checkered history. I know that at times the gospel came with all of the trappings of Western culture. And so here's Jesus and a Coke and a Big Mac as well. And uh, here's the Bible and Jesus and also Western individualism. Like, I, I know that, that, that the, the, the mission of the church has had a checkered history, and particularly as it was wrapped up in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, as the mission was going out, and it was wrapped up with all kinds of bad, defective ideologies that existed within Western European nations. But listen, for all its lamentable cultural imperialism, you know, Christian mission, uh, that's characterized Christian mission, American Christianity never took root in Asia or in Latin America or in Africa. What took root in Africa was African Christianity. And what took root in Asia was Asian Christianity. And what took root in Latin America was Latin American Christianity. I can remember just the experience of going and I, I, I did some work in Burkina Faso with my uncle who was building churches there, which is a, a small little country in Western Africa, and going out to the bush and worshiping in these bush churches in, in a worship style I had never experienced before. There was just one drum, just mm, 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 mm. something like this, you know? And it was just beautiful. And then I, I can remember going and worshiping in the Westminster Abbey in London. And so radically different, totally different cultures and language and music styles and ways in which the cultures express themselves, both unique to their own time and place. And this is what Christianity has increasingly done as the gospel has gone out. The gospel, like a seed, has gone out into host cultures, and when it takes root there, it challenges certain ideologies and idolatries in the host culture. It never leaves the culture unchanged, and yet it also allows itself to grow in the soil of that culture and take on some of the qualities and characteristics and music styles and clothing styles and church government styles of that host culture. And this is what Christianity does because it's inherently transcultural. You know, um, I, I think that even this complaint that many people have about Christian mission, like, here you are, you know, you're taking your, uh, you're, you're, you're out there, you know, this is the problem with Christianity and the idea of Christian mission and is Christians are out there and they're trying to convert other people and that's cultural imperialism, that is colonialism. There was a book written by a, uh, a brilliant uh, African scholar whose name is Laman Sane. And he wrote this book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he, he was a professor at Harvard and at Yale. And while he was at Harvard, he challenged this common idea that was being promoted on the campus among his fellow professors that, you know, Christianity and Christian mission is so culturally imperialistic and colonial. And he's like, look, I grew up as an, as a, in Islam as an African, and I completely disagree with you. 
And in this book, he said, look, he says, I'm so tired of people saying, look, you mustn't try to convert Africans. You know, he says, what are you trying to say, that Jesus belongs to you, but not to us Africans? You know, you Western people can be converted and transformed by this good news of the saving love of God brought originally out of the Middle East, but we can't be transformed. We can't take ownership of this good news. Now that is cultural imperialism. And he comes up with this theory. He says, look, every culture has a baseline narrative. Every culture has a theme. And he says, African culture understands that the world is filled with spiritual forces, with dark forces. You know, it's a, oftentimes a very animistic culture. And he said, we're always asking, how are we going to deal with this? And he said, modern societies mocked us. They laughed at our Africanness. That's cultural totalitarianism. And this is what he said. He says, Christianity answered the great challenge of our hearts. And he writes this. Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. And after the stars danced, they weren't silent anymore. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. And this is what Christianity has done when it's gone forward at its best. And so this leads us to our second point, or our second little observation. Christianity is not only transcultural, Christianity and the gospel is inherently translatable. And again, Laman Sani actually points this out. He, he's a, a scholar of Islam, and he says, the distinction between Islam and Christianity, both are monotheistic religions, both are missionary religions, they want to convert people. He said, the difference is, is that he says, you cannot properly, you're not really properly allowed to translate uh, the Quran because it was given through dictation in Arabic from the very words of Allah. And he points out that the words of Jesus almost certainly were spoken in Aramaic, and from their very inception, when they were first put in print, they were already translated into the common language of the day, Koine Greek. And ever since then, Christianity has been translated into different cultures and languages. I mean, this is like we support Bible translators in this church. We have Wycliffe Bible translators who are in like the South Sudan doing incredible work. And what are they doing? They're going in and they're learning the idiom and the language and the cultural narratives and they're seeking how do we translate this message into this other culture so that we don't dominate and import our culture to them but rather allow the gospel to take root and to grow up within that native culture. And this is the beauty of Christian mission at its best. It brings freedom and healing and restoration to different cultures, and then it redeems those cultures, and then those cultures themselves, because of the unique way in which Christianity begins to grow and flourish there, begins to contribute something to the rest of the worldwide global church. You know, C.S. Lewis, uh, he famously lamented his, uh, his, he, has, he had these... Uh, couple buddies that he hung out with all the time, Charles Williams, who was an author, and then J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who, was, who was, he called Ronald. And he said he used to love for the three of them to hang out together. And then after Ronald, Tolkien died, 
Lewis said he was just devastated, but he thought, well, at least maybe now that Ronald has died, I'll have more of Charles at least to myself. But then he found that as he began hanging out with Charles without Ronald there, he didn't get more of Charles, he got less of him because he missed out that part of Charles that only Ronald could bring out. And this is why we need the global church. This is why we need Christianity experienced from different people and different cultures and places and different vantage points because they can contribute to our understanding of who God is and how God works in this world. You know, for example, uh, Asian theologians are helping individuals in the West who live in a very highly individualistic culture, understand the dimensions of the biblical text and of Christianity that are very communal, that are very much honor-shame culture. And so we learn something from one another. And yet on the other hand, the, 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 you know, Christianity, it goes in, but it doesn't leave cultures unchanged. I mean, the point here is that people need to be rescued and changed and redeemed. And so this brings us to our final point. Oh, I am sorry, I gotta, can I, can I give you one more quote from La Manzane? You don't, you don't have a choice, I'm sorry. I don't know why I asked you that, but here we are. By the way, he points out, this is fascinating, he said that 90% of the grammars and the lexicons that have been produced in the world, 90% of them have been produced through Christian missionaries. Isn't that fascinating? because of this intense work of translation, because the gospel is translatable. It goes into the idiom and the language of other cultures. But he said this, translation is the church's birthmark as well as its missionary benchmark. The church would be unrecognizable and unsustainable without it. So God loves a diversity of cultures. His will was not for the whole world to become culturally Jewish. You know, when the gospel broke open, it allowed a variety of different cultures to receive this good news and experience transformation in their own right, and then from their own language and their idiom and their cultures begin to bring the good things that have been redeemed for the benefit of the worldwide communion of faith. Which brings us to our last and final point, and that's this. The global mission of God is rooted in the universal offer of the gospel, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The global mission of God is rooted in the global heart of God, of the global love of God, for God so loved the world. God loves all people. God loves all kinds of people. You know, in our text, he loves the men servants and the male servants, or the female servants. He, 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 loves, he loves the young as well as the old. He loves men and women. He loves Jews and Gentiles. He loves people from all different cultures and places. And he loves people from a rough past and addicted people and gay people and straight people. And God just loves all kinds of people. God has a big, wide heart for people. There is a wideness to God's mercy. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from or what you've done in your life. The love of God is for you. The universal offer is this, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you breathe and you've walked in here, the mercy and the grace and the love of God is freely offered to you, to any who will call upon the name of the Lord 
to any who will turn away from their idols and from their, their ideologies and the things that they're clinging to right now and turn away from that and just call upon the name of the Lord. When it comes to the mercy and grace of God, all you need is need. And so if you come in here today with need, and I don't know where you're at today, you know, you watch some people get baptized today who have just more recently kind of like come to realize the beauty, the depth of the gospel and wanted to confess their faith in Jesus. Listen, this newness, this goodness is for you. If you will call upon the name of the crucified and risen Son of God, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to close our time by sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And it's in this practice that we are reminded again of this universal offer of salvation that Jesus welcomes all who will come to him to his table. All who will come, Jesus says, I will in no way cast out. We are all welcome to his table. So as we close out our service together, I just want to invite you just to pause with me and to pray together, and then we're going to sing and we're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. Then I'll come up and I'll lead us in partaking in the Lord's Supper together. You know, if you are not yet a Christian, don't feel pressured to participate in this practice. This is a practice Jesus gave to his followers but if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, even as others are receiving the bread and the cup, I just want to invite you to pause and just, if you're willing, just maybe you're in a place where you're searching, just ask God if you're real, reveal more of yourself to me. Maybe you're in a place today where you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm ready, I'm convinced. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call out to him, just say, Lord, have mercy on me during this time. And you can experience his healing, his love, his saving power. Let's pray together. God, we ask that as we close out our service together, sharing in this practice, that you would open us up again to your love and your kindness, that you would nourish us with your broken body and your shed blood in Christ, that we would be reminded that we belong to you. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.